Good morning. I am the other Pastor Beth, and it is my privilege to um, be asked to share the word with us, with you together this morning, just to help to give the official Pastor Beth of this congregation a little bit of a little bit of a break. David and I were commenting. I was reflecting recently that one of the privileges in my ministry, um, after 25 years in local church ministry and doing that in a co-pastorate with Dave is, I feel a little guilty saying this, but I've never had to preach every single week because we always share the preaching privileges. So I understand how important it can be to have that break. The text for this morning continues in the narrative lectionary that um, Beth uses um, throughout the year, throughout this season. And this text is probably one of the most important theological texts in the two volumes of Samuel. And some scholars believe in all of the Deuteronomical texts. David is the king and his army has been busy defeating neighboring tribes. And if you look at the chapters before and even the chapters after this text, you can read all about the numbers of those who were in the army, the number of the lives lost, the number in the, the other armies, the number of horses that were captured and killed. In all honesty, this is not the kind of movie that I would choose to watch. What we need to know is for David and the people of that time, all of these victories are a sign that they are doing what God wants them to do. Victory is a sign of God's favor. David is king of Israel, and all along, through all of these conquests, they have continued to carry the Ark of the Covenant with them. You know the ark that Moses brought down from the, the Ten Commandments, the commandments that Moses brought down and they put it in a vessel. They've been carrying this with them for many, 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 many decades. So it's in what's called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is protected underneath a tent. And the whole thing can be called the tabernacle as well. It has been movable. It has gone with the people, and the people have not touched it, and they have kept it safe. So we come to this chapter, the seventh chapter in 2 Samuel. David has been very successful. He has built for himself a house. And the word for house could actually also be translated many other things, one of which is palace. He is, after all, the king. And what's noted is that cedar wood is used in the palace. And again, this is another indication that this is a house extraordinary. This isn't what the other people in his kingdom are living with because the logs of lumber, the cedar, would have come from Tyre and were perhaps a, a gift from the king of that city-state. So David, David has found favor with with. And, and diplomacy with some of the other nations as well. 
As I mentioned, the Hebrew word, and I, unlike the other Pastor Beth, did not take Hebrew, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Um, But the word which is used for house can be translated as house, dwelling, palace, temple, or dynasty. And there's a play on this word in those multiple meanings, so keep that in mind as you hear the text. In addition to the emphasis on this word for house, this is our first introduction to Nathan, who's identified as a prophet. We really don't have any background about him. But finally, this text as we have it today was probably not how it appeared originally. And scholars don't really know what the original um, form of the text would have been, but it is clear that it's been edited over the years, um, added to in order that the larger theological significance can become clear. One of the ways that we can detect this is in the three incidents, instances when we hear Nathan sharing his vision or his message from God to David. Thus says the Lord, and remember, again, Lord is L-O-R-D, capital letters, which means Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh. And then the first, after the first time we hear that phrase, we're going to get Yahweh's response to David's vision. And it actually comes not as an answer, but as a question. And then we're going to hear again, thus says the Lord Almighty. And we're going to hear a traditional formula And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the sermon. And then we get a third time. Moreover, the Lord, Yahweh, says to you, David. So there are actually three three messages which are built on top of each other. Listen for the word of God in the reading of this text. Now, when the king, David, was settled in his house, And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. The king said to the prophet Nathan, See, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, it stays in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do what you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving in a tent and a tabernacle, and wherever I have moved about among the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. So here we are in the second message. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over the people of Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers 
shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that, here we have the third section, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This ends the reading. Thanks be to God. I take seriously the benefits that come from resting. If you've ever been to family camp with me, you know that that hour after lunch, flat on your back time, that rest hour is rest hour, and you had better be quiet around my cabin. I find inspiration comes to me as I literally wake up from a rest or sleep. Or when I've been on vacation for a while and I let go of the stresses of every day, I can begin to feel the creative juices beginning to flow. But is it possible to have too much rest? Maybe in a pandemic quarantine, I might say yes. And often, as much as I, an introvert, love time to myself, it is important to be able to check in with others I trust. In the Quaker tradition, people, when people are considering significant decisions, they have a tradition of gathering a group of people to be a clearness committee. You share your ideas and you sit in silence and you allow them to reflect on what they hear and the messages that God may be sharing through them to you. Or some of us use and have spiritual directors. And these individuals can also serve as a similar sounding board to help reflect back questions to us. Individuals who are seeking to understand our grounding in our relationship with God. Nathan, perhaps, serves as a sort of spiritual advisor for David, who is in a time of rest. Perhaps he has too much time on his hands. He's used to, to, to navigating and commanding battles, and it's a time of peace. And so there he is, sitting in his new palace, considering, isn't this lovely, this life of a, being a king? And he looks out and he sees the tent the temporary shelter that has been literally all over creation in which the Ark of the Covenant is held. And he realizes that maybe if he as the king is going to settle down in one place, and if he the king lives in a very nice house, then surely he should, be, he should build a temple for Yahweh. After all, that's what all of the other kings of this time had done, built temples to honor their own deity. 
He decides he will provide a place for the people to gather to worship. It only makes sense, right? So he shares his idea with Nathan, and the prophet agrees. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Until Nathan goes to sleep. And God instructs Nathan to tell David. Thus says Yahweh. Now in that first message, as I mentioned earlier, as Nathan receives this message from God in the form of a question back to David, in which God upends the premise of David's idea in the first place. God says to David, have, have, have I ever suggested to you or any of the other leaders that a temple should be built? God doesn't say that a temple will never be built, which is good because God picks up this idea in a few late, verses later and, and changes that a little bit, but says here that, God, that David is not the one to direct that architectural feat. Yahweh's message then is that because the ark has been mobile with the tent that could be carried from place to place, that this has served as an important reminder to the people that God has been with them every step of the way. God isn't just with the leader. God has literally been in the middle of the people. So to build a temple, perhaps, feels to God that David is trying to control God and to domesticate God and tell God where God is to be and to stay. The second decree begins again, thus says the Lord Almighty, and it's followed by two lists of three. And this is a very common formula in other prophecies. The first list mentions, reminds David everything that God has done for David. I took you from the pasture. Remember, you were just a lowly shepherd. I have been with you every step of the way, and I have cut off your enemies for you. And the next three are the future promises that, again, are directed to David. I will make you a great name. Here we are, how many thousands of years later, we sing a hymn, and we will be singing a hymn in a few short months, um, once to David's royal city. It's David's royal city. His name has become great. God says, I will make a great name for you. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, to be at peace or the time following military victory is seen as a sign of favor again from God. These things, particularly pointing to God, what God will do in the future as a source of inspiration and comfort for the generations that come, because they are not just about David. They extend beyond David to David's kin, to the generations that are come, to come. And the third, moreover, Yahweh declares to you that. In this section, there's a definite shift. It's not as if God is speaking directly to David, but that Nathan is interpreting God to David. God is speaking more in the third person. 
Remember that this message that Nathan is to share with the king comes after the king's already built his own house and he wants to build one for God. But in the opening verses to the third message, God reverses this and says, it is declared that God will build a house for David. It's not that David needs two houses because after all, his already has cedar in it. What else could a man want? This is where we need to understand the fuller um, understanding of the word for house. And we extend this beyond David as a person, but to the dynasty and to the lineage that is yet to come. The fact that God has been with David in the past and that David already has a house is now extended to the generations that are yet to come. Specifically, to a son of David, who will be the one to build the temple. Remember earlier on, Yahweh said, have I ever asked anybody to build a temple for me before? And the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question, but the answer is no. Here we're hearing God saying, okay, there's a temple that's going to be built, but David, you're not the one who's going to do it. Apparently, God is no longer worried about being put in one place or domesticated. There is now merit to this idea, and God will be the one to initiate it. Just to clarify from verse 13a, he, David's offspring, will build a dynasty, a house, for my name. God does not see the temple as being the place where God will stay or the only place where Israel will experience God's presence. But it will be a place where people will know about God. Remember, the Hebrew people do not say the name of God. Neither do they look or touch the ark. These are very intimate markers of relationship. Just as when we say someone's name, and when we see them and when we touch them, that's very intimate. How we have learned this lesson painfully in these times of physical distance, not being able to look someone directly in their eyes and say their name and touch them. The temple will be where they worship, where they learn and they grow. It will not be where God is kept. It is then explained that there will continue to be a relationship between God and the king or the son of David. God knows that the king will not always do and say what God intends. Leaders, this, this is a newsflash, leaders sin. And in this passage, we hear that leaders, God knows that, and that God expects that those leaders will have to accept the consequences by mere mortals for those sins. But nothing will separate the steadfast love of God toward the king or the dynasty. This idea of steadfast love is a part of the loyalty which God requires for covenant relationships. In all of this, there is a tension between allegiance to the political ideology of a ruler that is destined by God to have that position of power and understanding that not every human leader does so grounded in deep faith. And that there's a tension between when the leader fails to see themselves as a mortal leader and assumes a higher position, more godlike, 
that it becomes very dangerous. How many times throughout history have we heard kings and leaders profess language that suggests they are God's chosen? Monarchy, the monarchy, monarchies of Europe are based on this idea. The king or queen is seen as the head of the church. And there's this really odd tension between the, the political and the religious. That's one of the reasons why the colonists decided to break from, from England and they wanted to make sure that there was a little bit more separation. This is known as a kind of a royal theology and it has been used to twist the ideas of political leaders at the expense of the faithfulness of their relationship with God and understanding God's relationship with the people. Kings, governors, dictators, presidents, clergy, Many in leadership positions throughout the course of history to this day have not been able to hold this tension in check. And misuse of power is corrupted. I am always amazed at the connections between lectionary readings chosen by others and assigned to dates in the calendar without any regard to the cultural context. As I said, this passage is a, just the next one on the, on the string of, of passages from the narrative lectionary. And how many times those readings hit us between the eyes squarely where we sit. So here we are in the Christian year, the week during which we will celebrate All, All Hallows Eve, which we know as Halloween. Now for those of us in the Protestant traditions, we call next Saturday Reformation Day. It falls the day before All Saints Day, which is always November 1st. Now, why is this significant? Because 503 years ago, a priest who lived in Wittenberg, Germany, nailed a list of statements based on his complaints against the Roman Catholic Church on the door of the Roman Catholic Castle Church in his town. Now, this is a common practice. Think of the wood doors as the community bulletin board. For those of you who remember, there were actually 95 theses in this list. What you need to know is that there are 95 because that's all that the printer could literally fit on the piece of paper. Martin Luther had many more things to say. Here in the sanctuary, we have Martin Luther. Martin is in the house, Zion. This is actually a replica of the statue, very tall statue, that sits in the town square in Wittenberg, Germany. And this was a gift to the then Ohio Conference, now the Heartland Conference, uh, five years ago when David and I, um, along with Bob and Diana Kutzbach, represented the conference to go to Germany to celebrate uh, 25 years of Kirchengemeinschaft, of our relationship with the Evangelical Church in Germany. I'll tell you later about the whole story of Martin and how Martin got here and where Martin has been sitting. But first, let me continue with Martin Luther, the real person, not the statue. Luther saw that the church and her leaders, from the pope on down through the bishops and the priests, were not managing this tension between the understanding of their ordained status of leadership through Christ and God's call to respond to the needs of the people. Again, for those of you who remember a bit of Reformation history, one of the things that Luther was opposed to was the paying of indulgences. 
This practice had been established that people could receive a pardon from the priest or a bishop or even the pope based on a sum of money that was set and was not uniform throughout the church's territories. Money that Luther knew was a hardship for commoners. Money that brought cheap grace, purchased by the wealthy landowners who could pay for it, who then did not have to face the consequences of their behavior. The money was brought in and just made the institution of the church wealthier. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's my simple explanation. When we look at today's text, we see that God intends for leaders to have to face the consequences of their actions based on the laws of the land. We all, from those of us commoners up to the highest positions of the land, have to expect that we, are, we will have to face the repercussions of our actions. And God expects from the highest positions of the land on down that leaders are to um, care for God's people. It's the role of the king in David's situation of leadership. It's not necessarily to be God's spokesperson, but it's the leader is intent, needs to be in right relationship with God and to respond to that leadership through care, respect, and support towards the people. As David discovered, it was not his place to tell God if or when to build the temple. It was his responsibility to keep the people safe and to be in relationship with God. There is another tenet of the reformers like Luther that touched upon this passage, that people were loved by God because of grace and not because of any set of actions or rituals. Prior to this period of time, people knew exactly what they needed to do to make God happy. They had to do specific things. It had to do with the work that they did. And Martin Luther is saying it's not based on the amount of money you pay to a priest. It's not based on specific saying of prayers that you might do to receive a pardon. But these are numbers 42, 43, and 44 of his 95 Theses. Christians are to be taught that the Pope does not intend the buying of pardons to be compared in any way to works of mercy. Christians are to be taught that the one who gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better work than buying pardons. Because love grows by works of love, and man becomes better. But by pardons, one does not grow better, only more free from penalty. The reformers believe that we are saved by grace, not by working to meet the expectations and tests set by others and we are to respond to the needs of those around us. Just like the leaders that would come after David, who God knew would fall short and have to face the consequences of their behaviors in their communities. Just take a look in a couple more chapters and see the heading that says Bathsheba, and if you want to know the next time that David's going to have to face the consequences of behavior, it kind of begins in that chapter. David's, God's commitment was and is steadfast. The text changes the understanding of the relationship between God and God's people. It's unconditional grace that is the foundation of hope. And it's not just about God's relationship with the leader, but remember in that third section, God is now, extend, the, God is now extending this through the proclamation, through Nathan, to everyone who follows. 
This is the second reason why this test rings so close to home for us as we enter this last week in October. We are now 10 days away from our own elections. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to reach into the TV or interrupt the voices on the radio as I hear candidates use rhetoric that comes close to or actually adopts the royal theology logic. Or hear constituents describe what they prefer in a candidate and I just think, wow, it really sounds like they want a savior. There is a difference between someone who saves us and someone who represents us. We aren't voting for Jesus or a Jesus replica to save us. We are asked to choose those to represent us and our communities and to have a larger picture for the common good. The good news is that we live in a political system in which our voices can contribute to that collective narrative. And for me, and the tenets of my faith, love of God and self, love of neighbor, and the care of creation are some of those things that direct my decisions. About 16 years ago, Dave and I gathered with a group of about 40 clergy from the Columbus area and the chancel of a um, AME church in Columbus for a press conference. We had been growingly, we had grown um, significant concerns over the course of that election season about the action of some clergy and politicians who seemed to be misusing their powers of influence. There was one particular pastor of a large church who had been very public with some statements and the use of his congregation in helping to support and to suggest that anybody who was a member of his church would vote for this particular candidate for office. We wrote a statement The pastor aforementioned um, was not present, but a reporter had been in touch with him, had shared our statement with him, and asked if he had a response to that statement. And through the reporter, the pastor said that he did not see any indication in the biblical text that he was to care for the poor. And I can tell you he didn't, because many people came to the food pantry at David's United Church of Christ who were members of his church because he denied them help. 40 people and a chancel not this bigger than this. We were close to close. We obviously didn't have to worry about physical distance and wearing masks. There was a collective rise in blood pressure that went like that and an audible gasp. This text sits in the tension between leaders who see their divine connection and those who fail to see how that ordained status implies a responsibility to the community. This text is one such text that indicates that the faithful are to enter into that text tension without overstepping their boundaries. If you have not yet voted, please be sure that you have a plan to do so. Early voting, I believe, continues this week. This is one of the most important ways for us to share our faithful voices in the midst of our political system, as wonderful and flawed as it is. Those who are elected are human like us, and we hope that they are able to provide for the common good and help to protect and serve those who are vulnerable and who live with disadvantages thanks to the barriers that obscure equal access to the law, to wealth, to rights. Finally, remember that this this text as we come into the season of Advent. 
Hard to say, but Advent is only four weeks away. Remember the prophet Nathan's message to King David and his dynasty, his lineage, which will follow him even after his own death. This is the beginning of the yearning for a Messiah in Judaism who would bring about God's kingdom, even during those periods of history during which Israel has lived under the tyranny of political systems that were clearly at odds with God's steadfast love. Although we are four weeks away from thinking about Advent, the foundations for the coming of Christ began all the way back during the kingship of Jesus' ancestor, David. So as we come to a close of our time gathered here today, I want you to consider that like David, we have to remember that we cannot control God and tell God where to dwell. That like David, in these endless days of pandemic restraints, we might benefit for remembering how it is that God has been with us, both in our own lives and in the lives of the communities that have nurtured and support us. It is good to remember, and it is even more important for us to express our gratitude for what God has done and know that God continues to work and promises to work on into the future. And like David, even though we can't see that future, we need to remind each other that God's steadfast love will be with us and lead us into God's future. May we find ways to confide in each other. Who is your clearness committee? Who is your spiritual companion that you can share your ideas with and have them help you listen for, is this really what God wants? We can do that, even in this age of connecting technologically. And may we be aware of the ways that God is speaking to us even now, even in the midst of all of the layers of noise that surround us from pandemic to understandings of racism to an election cycle that think God will come to an end soon. And as we move beyond the election, into what comes next. May we remind each other of God's steadfast love for us and promise to hold us even then. And may we be faithful in our response to how it is that God is calling us in our own lives. In these pandemic times, how we respond is not perhaps anything we ever imagined. May we let go of our own expectations and may we allow God to overcome those barriers and invite us into the newness that is offered to us all.